0: the Corinthians for saying, I am of Paul, or I am of Peter, or I am of Apollos. But sadly, it remains true today. People like to align themselves with various popular preachers. People say something along the lines of, I am of John MacArthur, or I am of John Piper, or I am of Paul Washer. Now, don't get me wrong, these men are gifts to the church and the lord has used each of them powerfully in my life as well and although the enemy has used information technology to bring all sorts of vile temptation into our homes the lord has used information technology in order to to give us access to vast amounts of solid biblical teaching but the problem comes when we make them our authority above God's word and above the local church. The problem is exacerbated when we define ourselves along these lines and divide ourselves along these lines. Now it can be be helpful to get an idea of of what somebody believes because of of who they listen to, because you know that that certain preachers and teachers tend to have certain uh, nuances and certain uh, beliefs that, that may be right or may be dreadfully wrong. It may become necessary to challenge someone to turn away from a particular false teacher. But there's only one person by whom we should identify ourselves. The Jews to whom Jesus was speaking in John chapter 8, verses 31 to 59, also identified themselves with a person. Now, if you're going to identify yourselves with a person, this person would be a good choice. He was a man who was exemplary in his faith in God. He was a man who was exemplary in his obedience to God, but he was just a man. He was a man who also had sinful tendencies. But despite his failings, this man was God's chosen man through whom he was going to bless his chosen people. This man was the one with whom God had made his covenant. This man was the father of his race and the one through whom all of the nations of the earth would be blessed. I'm speaking here, of course, of Abraham. The Jews here, these Jews were identifying themselves by their lineage from Abraham. Now the Jews are the natural offspring of Abraham, and they can, in one sense, rightly identify themselves with him. But in this passage, Jesus is going to prove that these Jews were not the children of Abraham, at least not in any eternal sense. Last week we saw in verses 12 to 30 how Jesus, along with God the Father, could testify about his identity. In revealing himself as the I Am, Jesus showed the Pharisees that they were lovers of darkness, that they were not lovers of God, that they were from below while he was from above. How he knew God, but they didn't know God. How he was bound for glory while they were bound for hell. The message in the rest of this chapter is essentially the same for these particular Jews. Even though they claimed to believe in Jesus, they will reveal that they are not the children of Abraham because they they reject Jesus. The true dividing line is true faith in Jesus, and the chasm between those on one side and those on the other is huge infinite those on one side will enjoy the supreme blessing of eternity in glory with God but those on the other side will suffer the supreme curse of eternal hellfire separated from God and between them there is an infinite chasm there's only two types of people in this world. Children of God and children of Satan. So this morning, as we look at Jesus and his interaction with these Pharisees, I would encourage and challenge us. Scripture commands us. God commands us to apply this message to ourselves, to ask, how does this apply to me? Which side am I on? Who am I? So, if you want to know who you are, ask the questions that Jesus asks in this text. Verses 31 to 36 Are you a slave of God or a slave of sin? And verses 37 to 47 Are you a child of God or a child of the devil? And in verses 48 to 59, are you alive in God or dead in sin? Now, as I was preparing this message, I had four pages on just the first point before I'd even gotten most of the way through it, so I realized I was going to have to deal with the second and third points next week, Lord willing. But this week, I just want to focus on that, that first question on these five verses, Are you a slave of God or a slave of sin? In verses 31 and 32, Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Now look back at verse 30. We talked about this last week. This was the group who had supposedly believed in him. So it seems that at least in some cases, this wasn't true belief. Last week I mentioned how in John 2.23, we also read that many believed in him, but Jesus didn't believe in them. He knew what was going on in their hearts. That faith didn't last. And we don't have to find out very long about these Jews. This faith didn't last either. Their rejection of Jesus will be crystal clear as we work through this passage. It was not abiding faith, but fleeting faith. It's not enough just to say with your mouth that you believe. You actually have to believe. So many people rely on a a profession of faith. But you need to ask the question, is faith my possession? Do I actually have the kind of faith that Scripture talks about? Or am I I doing just, just empty words? The only kind of faith is the faith that actually endures to the end. It's an abiding faith. As Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, Matthew seven twenty one. John writes in 1 John 3, 6, No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has seen him or known him. They've never known him. They've never actually truly believed in him and the fruit of their lives proves it. That's precisely the point that Jesus is making here. It's only those who abide or remain in the word of Christ that are true disciples. And true disciples will know the truth and the truth will set them free. Not may, set them free, will, will set them free. So consider the logic of what Jesus is saying here. True disciples remain true to what Jesus teaches. True disciples will know the truth and true disciples will be set free by the truth. Listen, True disciples remain true to what Jesus teaches. We do not reject or question anything. Anything that Jesus teaches, we submit to the entire word of God from Genesis to Revelation. True disciples will know the truth. We will be able to discern between between truth and error, and brothers and sisters, we are living in dangerous times. Everywhere you look and everything you hear in the world is full of error, but that error has crept into the church. It's infiltrated the church and it's twisting the church so that it looks more like the world than it does like the kingdom of God. True disciples will be set free by the truth. We will display lives that are characterized by repentance from sin. The people who know us best will say, I see the fruit of the spirit in you. We're not talking about sinless perfection. I see you changing and growing and being made more like Jesus just as you are predestined to be, fellow Christian. But these things, this belief in Jesus, this knowing of the truth that will set you free is not merely adherence to a set of principles. It's not a matter of just ticking the correct theological box. It's knowing Jesus who is the way, the truth, and the life. This is a statement of relationship. True disciples will have a freedom-giving relationship with Jesus himself. But these Jews immediately showed where their allegiance was. They showed their colors. They reacted to what Jesus was saying. In the very first word that comes out of their mouth, They're rejecting the words of Jesus. But they're they're professing faith in Jesus. They're saying that they believe in him, but they're rejecting his words. It's an oxymoron. It's like Peter saying, no, Lord. Those words should never go together. They can never go together. If Jesus is your Lord, there's never a no next to Lord. They answered Jesus, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you then say you will become free? Their point is that as children of Israel, they have never been in slavery. Now, surely they can't be talking about political slavery. Remember, they had just finished celebrating the, the Feast of Tabernacles, celebrating their liberation from slavery in Egypt. And children of Abraham had been slaves to Assyria and Babylon and Persia and Greece. And at that very moment, they were still slaves to Rome. So they couldn't have been talking about political slavery. Neither could they have been talking about social slavery, where somebody sells themselves into slavery because of being in abject poverty. Many Jews also had been enslaved in this way, and many were still serving as slaves in this way. These Jews were talking about religious slavery. Religiously, they consider themselves as free. Their appeal was to God's covenant with Abraham in Genesis 17, where the Lord said, And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you, Genesis 17:7. 7. Now, as a nation, they could claim Abraham as their father. In that sense, they were God's chosen people. That were appealing to Abraham, who was the father of Israel biologically. And he is also the father of Israel spiritually, but of spiritual Israel. Turn your Bibles, please, to Romans chapter 9. Look at verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Now we'll talk more about this next week, but the Israel that matters is spiritual Israel. And That Israel was was a type that pointed ahead to the true spiritual Israel. Now, in my understanding of eschatology, I do believe that there is a future for Israel. When I look at at passages like Romans chapter 11, I believe that there is going to be a future for Israel. But here, Jesus is saying that these, these Jews are not true Israel. So at the same time, these, these Jews are denying that they have ever been in bondage to anyone. They thought, no, Gentiles, those Gentiles, when they bow before idols, they're the ones who are in bondage. But we are the children of Abraham. We've never been in bondage to anyone. We are the true children of God. But they conveniently forgot that God calls His children out of spiritual captivity, out of bondage to sin. So just as Jesus spoke to those who were sick, who didn't but didn't know it, in Mark chapter two seventeen, saying that those who are are well have no need of, his, of a physician, but those who are sick, He was saying that to the Pharisees. They thought that they were spiritually healthy, but Jesus told them that they were sick. Now he's speaking to those who are slaves, but don't know it. This is the worst kind of a slave, to be a slave and not even know it. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Now, he's referring here to those whose lives are characterized by unrepentant, habitual sin. John spoke of the same thing in 1 John 3, 4, where he says, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness, and he continues in verses 9 and 10. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. The person who is genuinely saved will demonstrate that by the bent of their lives. True Christians will be characterized by faith in God, by obedience to God, by love for brothers and sisters. Whereas false disciples, those who have never really believed, will also be exposed by their works. So are you characterized by the works of the flesh or by the fruit of the Holy Spirit and growth in the same? These Jews didn't understand that they were slaves. They didn't understand it. They didn't believe it. Nor did they understand that spiritual slavery is the worst form of slavery, not not political or economic slavery. As D.A. Carson explains, Jesus would not reduce himself, become merely a political messiah. He had his sights set on something infinitely greater. He came to free his people from a slave master that is far more cruel than Rome. That's why the social gospel is not the gospel. Jesus didn't come, as Brian McLaren claims, primarily to deal with oppression, poverty, and sickness, but to deal with sin. And he dealt with those issues to show, to show who he really is as God the Son, to deliver us from a cruel and evil taskmaster that hates its captives, that hates God and gives its captives no rest, but only wants to ensnare them and drag them into deeper and deeper bondage. Sin is a monster that is never satisfied. Sin aims at the grossest possible manifestation of the sin that its slaves are engaged in. Unforgiveness seeks the most merciless forms of vengeance. Anger aims at murder. Lust wants to engage in the vilest forms of sexual gratification. But that's not all. Sin seeks to destroy its slaves, to destroy them in hell. Spiritual slavery is bondage to rebellion against the Most High God. And that is the most vile and the most dangerous thing of all. But these Jews were in bondage to that and they didn't even realize it. How many people do you come into contact with in your daily life? Even those who claim to be Christians who are in that exact same bondage. And I fear that, that given a group this size, that there are probably those even here amongst us who believe they know Jesus, but are deceived and are still in bondage to that cruel slave master. Jesus goes on in verse 35 to talk about another condition of this slavery to sin. He says, the, son, the slave does not remain in the house forever, the son remains forever. Now, I was disappointed with how most versions, most modern versions, translate this. The NIV wrongly says, A son. Now, this, that's totally off because when you look at the Greek, the definite article is there. It's not a son who remains in the house forever, but a the Son who remains in the house forever. And also most modern versions use a small s there for Son. Now we we can't appeal to the Greek here because the Greek doesn't ever use a capital S to refer to Son as God the Son. But the context shows that Jesus is indeed referring to himself here. God the Son Remains in the house forever. Whenever John uses that formulation, the Son, he's referring to Christ, and he does so in the very next verse. So, what is Jesus saying here? He's saying that slaves may receive the benefits of living in a master's house for a time, but not forever. They could be sold or cast out at any moment. And given the context, they've got Abraham in mind here. They probably in their minds would have jumped immediately to Ishmael and Isaac. As Sarah said to Abraham, cast out this slave woman with her son. For the son of the slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac, Genesis 21.10. Ishmael was cast out, but Isaac alone had the privileges of being their son. And as such, Isaac was a type that pointed to Jesus Christ, God the Son. The Son here is the Son, Jesus Himself, the Son of God. And he has eternal privileges with God the Father. He alone has the authority to free slaves. So in verse 36, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. The freedom that we gain in Christ is true freedom. This is the ultimate emancipation of proclamation. When Jesus deals with sin, he really and finally deals with it. Turn your Bibles, please, to Romans chapter 6. In verse 16 of Romans 6, Paul says, Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. I'm to ask you the question, what relationship do you have with the sin in your life? Do you see it as a mortal enemy? Are you fighting it with all that's in you? Or are you simply going along with it? Are you just being swept along in its wake? Are there sins in your life that you don't even want to overcome? If that applies to you, then you are a slave of sin. But in verse 20 of Romans 6, Paul says, for when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to To righteousness. If you're a slave to sin, you are free in regard to righteousness. Now, people often try to argue that they have free will. And the idea has crept into Christian thinking that that people are born neutral. But this doesn't line up with the biblical testimony. We do have free will, but we only have a will that is free to act according to its nature. And what is your nature? We came by our sin honestly. We inherited it. We inherited it from Adam. Paul says in Romans 5.12, Sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. And David speaks for us too when he says in Psalm 51.5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. We were born in sin. Slaves of sin have no freedom to do what is right. They cannot do what is right. Before the Lord saved me, I would have said that I was free. And I was free. But I was free from righteousness. I could do anything I wanted except stop sinning. For example, I tried to quit smoking probably over a hundred times, but I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. But even if I did actually manage to quit, some other sinful bondage would have immediately taken its place. Not to mention the fact that apart from Christ, when I was apart from Christ, everything that I did... Was sinful. I was unable to do anything for the glory of God. I had no desire to do anything for the glory of God because my heart was hard. I had a heart of stone. But, but when I was regenerated by the Holy Spirit, He took out from me the heart of stone and gave me instead a heart of flesh. He changed my desires. He made me free. If the sun has set you free, you will be free indeed. There are all kinds of sins that people can be enslaved to. Slavery to drugs, slavery to lust, slavery to unforgiveness, slavery to bitterness, slavery to self-image, slavery to the opinions of others, slavery to legalism. If the Son makes you free, you will be free indeed. Romans 8-2, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. This is a law. It is a law, brothers and sisters, that has set us free from captivity to sin in Christ. In Romans 6.22, Paul continues, But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. We who are in Christ are no longer slaves to sin. We've become slaves to God. In coming to Christ, we have exchanged slave masters. There's only two types of slavery, slavery to sin or slavery to God. And again, the chasm between these two slave masters is infinite. Whereas one hates you infinitely and wants to destroy you, The other loves you infinitely and gives you life. Christian, the slave master who bought you loves you so much that he sent his son to die for your sins. Jesus said in Matthew 11:28 to 30, "Come to me all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Do you know that kind of slavery? Do you know God as your loving, heavenly Father? Slavery to God is life and joy and peace. But don't forget, slavery to God is slavery. You're not your own. You are bought with a price. And that price, beloved, is the precious blood of Jesus Christ. God owns you. Every action of your life is to be for His glory. Every decision to be submitted to Him. Every minute of your life is His. Every thought submitted to Him. This is what God has freed us for. Slavery to Him. So what do you live for? Do you live for pleasure? Do you live for entertainment? Do you live for family? We are all slaves to something. You're either a slave of God or a slave of sin. You can't be both. It's either one or the other. But why would you submit to sin when instead you can have the loving sovereign of the universe as your slave master? If Jesus is not your Lord, he is not your Savior. No Lord doesn't cut it. But those who are truly slaves of God will be fighting against sin. They will, as John Owen said, be killing sin. He said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Brothers and sisters, are there sins in your life that you are trying to overcome, but you're not walking in victory? Remember who you are. You are a slave of God. The Son has made you free. You are free indeed. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead is at work in you. Look back over the course of your life since coming to Christ. Can you see the changes that God has wrought? Can you see how your desires Have changed? Can you see how your actions have changed? We are told in Philippians 2 12 and 13 to work out our salvation in fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you to will and to work according to his good pleasure. Is God at work in you? Then it is necessary that your life will change your desires will change and your and your life will follow suit do you see the freedom that god has brought do you see the way that god has enabled you to overcome things that you never thought you could overcome do you see see how he's done in you to do what you never thought you could have done maybe it's share the gospel with that hostile family member. Maybe it's, it's standing up for Jesus in the workplace when, when your coworkers are, are saying things and looking at things that are an abomination to God. These are things that you could never do on your own. Apart from Jesus, we can do nothing, but we can do all things through him who strengthens us. Christ has died to set us free. No matter what the circumstances of our lives, whether we are here in comfortable North America, he has enabled us, he has died to set us free from bondage to worldly pleasures and the pursuit of comfort to live a life that is totally sold out for God. Or whether you are a a Christian in North Africa facing death because you call on the name of God. God has called us to freedom. And God empowers us to do what we could never do otherwise. Hear this testimony of a woman named Blandina, a woman who knew that she was a slave of God. This comes from Eusebius, the early church historian who chronicled the early persecution of Christians in the second century under Marcus Aurelius. Bladina was a slave and she was taken into custody along with her master, who was also a Christian. And Bladina was a weak and frail woman, so much so that her friends feared that she would be too weak to confess Christ under torture and duress. But nonetheless... As she was tortured from morning to night, she was filled with such power that those who tortured her grew exhausted and admitted that they were beaten because there was nothing else that they could do to her. They were astounded that she was still alive because her whole body had been smashed and lacerated. Her torturers claimed that any one of the things that they had done to her should have claimed her life let alone a succession of them. But this blessed woman, like a noble athlete, gained in strength while confessing the faith and found comfort for her sufferings by saying, I am a Christian and nothing wicked happens among us. Next she was tied to a stake and they let loose wild animals to attack her but the animals didn't. Her continual prayers greatly inspired her fellow victims who saw Christ in her. They saw her doing what she never could have done on her own. Her example convinced them that all who suffer for Christ have eternal fellowship with the living God. She was taken down and returned to the jail to be reserved for another ordeal. Small and weak and despised, she had put on the great, invincible champion, Christ. But then finally, after being forced to watch the torture of her companions for days, she was whipped, placed on a red-hot iron grate, wrapped in a net, and thrown before a charging bull that trampled her. But then still alive, she was finally pierced with a sword. This woman was a slave of Christ. It was said that her life ended like a noble mother who had comforted her children and sent them on triumphantly to the king. That she rejoiced at her own departure as though she had been invited to a wedding feast. James Spencer Northcote writes of the experience of other such martyrs in Epitaphs of the Catacombs. They opposed all questionings about them with a short but comprehensive answer. I am a Christian. Again and again, they caused no little perplexity to their judges by the pertinacity with which they adhered to this brief profession of faith. The question was repeated, who are you? And they replied, I am a Christian. They said, I have already said that I am a Christian, and he who says this has thereby named his country, his family, his profession, and all things else besides. Others said, I am a slave of Caesar, but a Christian who has received liberty from Christ himself. Or I am a free man, a slave of Christ. Brothers and sisters, if you have been set free by Christ, you are free indeed. And no matter what the world or the flesh or the devil hurdles at you, you will remain free. Because it is God the Son who will set you free. So who are you? Who am I? We are all slaves, all of us. But we're either slaves slaves to sin or slaves to righteousness. Which one are you? Let's pray.